जाए भारतीय माए पूरा की जाए पूरी राम की जाए गांधी जिन्होंने देवी की जाए भक्ति देवी की जाए सीमाए की जाए समवेद भक्ति झंडी की जाए
Anjuchatya Kutopalaha, Vajvahama Padaisi Kritani, Vilokyartala Samadhupani. The gopis began following Krishna's path, as shown by his many footprints, but when they saw that these prints were thoroughly intermingled with those of the Sirmos concept, they became perturbed and spoke as follows. So we're going to read a Sanatana Goswami's Tika, there's no BBT purport. So Sanatana Goswami. They followed his path by the footprints marked with the symbols. So yesterday we had a nice meditation on the symbols. Anybody remember what any of the symbols are? Elephant code. suggests that the footprints were scattered in many places where they were isolated footprints. And Jesus Goswami says that in some places Krishna walked on grass so there was no footprints. Thought though weak of Allah from separation and searching, they searched in front for his path. Or they saw in front his footprints mixed with those of another gobi, Vadvaha, or of someone who was like a daughter-in-law since the prints were delicate because she appeared to be shy. So one reason it's called Vadyu, or wife, is that the prints were not so distinctive. So it looked like it was a, a shy new bride. Or this means Radha was famous in Gokula as Krishna's wife, since Yasoda had that desire and expressed it sometimes. So Radha sometimes called Krishna's wife because Yasoda said, oh, I wish that Krishna would marry her. Her name is not directly stated, but simply written as Vadu. Kapitena Sanyam Yata Kripta Punya Madalasa Padani Yas Yas Chaitani Ganatya Pat Ananicha Someone with great piety, pride, and lethargy arriving from love has gone with him. Her footprints are deep and thin from the Vishnu Prana. His prints were very mixed, Supritani, with hers, since her arm was on his shoulder. He had not left the others because of anger, hatred, or detachment, but to lead one of them away. So this is important because later when Krishna returns, the gopis say, Why did you leave us? Are you ungrateful? You just don't care about us, or you, you, you hate us. So. Here's Sanatana Goswami saying he didn't leave them because of anger, because of hatred, or because of detachment, but to leave, but to leave one among them away. She had been with them, but by some signal he left with her. His footprints appeared at a distance, and then after walking for some time, met with hers. They were pained, so the gopis looking for Krishna and found his footprints, they were pained because he had accepted one of them and given up the others. Or, though pained by separation, they spoke to each other while reflecting on the situation. So I really know how, especially Bhusanath and Goswami, Jiva Goswami, will give often more than one, sometimes three or four different ways of understanding a particular word in the verse. So here he's saying this trouble, our Tamha, that they're experiencing, is either because, well, we're paying because he left us just to be with this Gopi, or that we're just paying due to separation in general. 
But so I wanted to look specifically at this word arpaha, or distress. Now we know in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says that there's four types of beginning devotees, neophyte devotees, Rupa Goswami explains in Bhakti Goswami to Sindhu. In the Eastern Ocean, he talks about four neophyte devotees uh, that all considered Pinista Adhikaris who come to Krishna. So who are those four types of pious beginners? People who are inquisitive, curious, in distress, wanting money and material opulence, and already grown and realized. So these are our four categories of persons. And the distressed, of course, is Exemplified, Rupa Goswami says, the exemplar of one who comes to God in distress is Gajendra. So the exemplar of one who comes to Krishna looking for mutual opulence is Dhruva Maharaj, inquisitive, the sages, Agnana and those who already run realize and want to go further are the four Kumaras. So Gajendra is the example of someone who goes to Krishna in distress. And there's a saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. So you know what foxholes are? So we're not literally talking about holes made by a fox. But in wartime, the infantry, the foot soldiers, if they're fighting with other foot soldiers, they will dig holes in the ground. Sometimes they dig a trench where a lot of them will go in one sort of and dig individual holes and they go in this hole in the ground and they kind of peek out and, and try to shoot at the opposing party. So the foxhole is a kind of protection. Of course, it can't be absolute protection. Obviously, someone can just throw a grenade or a bomb and blow them up in the foxhole and you have to peek up out of the foxhole in order to shoot your own weapon. And as soon as you peek up out of the foxhole, you become very vulnerable. So somebody may be an atheist, but as soon as they're on the battlefield, then they're praying, Dear Lord, please save me. Dear Lord, please save me. Um, my father always told the story. His, his own uh, parents ran a religious food company, but they were not actually themselves religious people. They put on a show of being religious so they could sell their products so people would trust them. <laughs> you know, if you're going to be... It's just like imagining somebody running a prasadam company who was an atheist, but, you know, pretending to be a nice devotee so that people would buy what we just talked yesterday and the day before on Yagdashish Tassim Santo, offering food and sacrifice, and somebody was asking, does the quality of the person cooking and making the offering matter? Is it possible that someone could go through motions and not actually be prasadam? So imagine somebody running a, a prasadam company or prasada restaurant, but they actually didn't believe in Krishna. But in order to have customers among the devotees, uh, they would make a show. So my grandfather, he passed away before I was born, but my parents told me he was like that. So he and his wife didn't actually believe in God. They weren't religious people. And uh, like Jews on the Sabbath, they're not allowed to turn on any lights. So they had, they had a, a room darkening curtains in their house. And they would pull those curtains so they could turn the lights off and on and their neighbors wouldn't know. Uh, so this was the kind of family my father was raised in. And when he was, I remember what age he was anymore, when he was a teenager, he was riding in a bus and the window was open 
and he had his elbow resting out of the window. And another bus came by and, and hit him on the elbow and broke his elbow. So he was in the hospital for a long time. We said that was when he started to believe in God because he started to pray. You know, please God, take away the plane, hey, please God, hear me. So this is very typical that when people are in distress, they turn to God. And, uh, my late God sister, uh, Columbia in the UK, who was famous for her incredible milk sweets, she and I were once taking a job of walk. We loved to walk around there because Sheila Prabhupada visited the manor often um, when he was physically present. He used to walk in the area, so we would retrace Prabhupada's walk path. So we were taking a job walk, and this one woman from where she was from, she came and asked us directions, and Columbia said, well, we're walking that way, why don't you walk with us, and we'll show you how to get to where you're going. So she's walking with us, and we're chanting Java. And at one point, Columbia, much to my embarrassment, started trying to get this woman to chant Hare Krishna. I was just like, oh, stop that. <laughs> it was really awkward. And the woman was saying, I'm doing fine right now in my life. Why should I pray? I don't have any reason to pray. And you can think of like adult children who only call their parents when they need money. Right? They, never, they never bother calling their parents who are going to visit them if they're in trouble. Hey, Daddy, hey, Mommy, you call me up. So uh, people are thinking like this. Why should I talk to God unless I'm in distress? This is, this is very typical. And Prabhupada said that in order to go to God when you're in distress, you have to be pious, because an impious person, when they're in distress, they'll do something else. An impious person, when they're in distress, they'll take intoxication, or, you know, they'll just go to a psychiatrist, or, or something. They, they won't, they'll say, there's, there's no God, even in that depth. Whereas if someone has some piety, uh, they will turn to God. But that distress, of course, is very me-centered, isn't it? You know, I'm, I'm using God. I'm saying, okay, you know, please be, as Papa would say, my order supplier. I think we can think of it like, a, you know, a shop. I'm probably ran a pharmacy, and I'm sure he had order suppliers, places that he could order, you know, bottles and chemicals and, and equipment. So we have order suppliers, like we go online and we go to whatever, you know, Walmart or Amazon, we place an order and it comes in the mail, or we go to a shop. So people think like that. I mean, why would I go to a shop unless I need something? Right? I have no reason. So why would you go to God if you need something, and you say, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and people think they're going to pay for it with their prayers, which always abuses me. Like if you went into a Walmart, and you went to the cashier, and you said, I don't have any money, but you're, you're so good-looking, and you're so kind, and you're so merciful, please give me this TV for free. So people think like that with God, you know. Oh God, you are great, you are merciful, you are powerful. Uh, please give me money, please give me an A on my exam, please cure me Aunt Sally, and so forth. Of course, going to God when you're in distress is better than not going to God, and it may lead to a relationship of love. It's possible that if you start praying to Krishna when you want something, Stress, you may start developing a relationship. All right, and then there's distress of the devotees. 
So this distress the gopis are feeling, which is motivating them to search for Krishna. And which is, I mean, otherwise, they could say, okay, Krishna's left us, right, we're going to go on with life. Right? Do people sometimes say that in ordinary relationships? You know, my boyfriend's left me, my girlfriend's left me, all right, well, I'm just letting go and moving on. <laughs> but the gopis were in great distress, but this was not like the distress of Vajendra. And this was not like the distress of my father on the bus or the distress of the soldiers in a foxhole. And this point is very difficult to understand. And Rupa Goswami develops a whole section in the last wave of the Southern Ocean of the Nectar of the of devotion, Bhakti Samhita Sindhu, to talking about how this kind of distress, this karuna ras, this lamentation, is actually ecstasy and it's not material. Because we might look at it and think like that. We might think, well, these are young girls and their boyfriend is left and so they're upset. And so they're looking for him like that or they're ordinary materialistic, pious materialistic people who are going to God in distress. Uh, but that's, that's not what's going on. So they could be going to him because they're apala, they're weak. And again, this is not the weakness of the person in the fossil or the weakness of an elephant being eaten by a crocodile, but a sense of loving dependence on the Lord. And they're feeling the Lord is satisfied with us. We give him happiness. But we're not able to give him that happiness right now. We're weak, we're insufficient. Without us, how will he be happy? Now, of course, the material side of this would be like if we have some service we do at the temple and for some reason we can't be there to do our service and we're thinking, how will Krishna get nicely served without being there? What will happen? Now, materially, that can just be ego, and we can think, well, I am the only one who can cook good birth for you. I'm the only one who can clean the temple room nicely or something like that. But there is a spiritual side of this, because each of us has a very individual relationship with Krishna. You know, there are five primary rasas, seven secondary rasas, 33 changing Vyavichari modes, but each devotee, each jiva, has a particular mix of these flavors. I give the example so many times, there's so many different kinds of ice cream. You know, we have our ice cream place that has 33 flavors, and other places, 55 flavors, and I've been in Dubai where our ice cream has chiku ice cream and sitipal ice cream. So with Krishna's unlimited flavors, each of us jivas represents a particular flavor of rasa, and the gopis are feeling weak, that they can't offer their flavor to Krishna, that they don't have the strength to do that. They don't have the strength to find him. So imagine that that someone you love very, very much is coming for dinner, and you're you're sick, and you can't get out of bed to make what they like. So it's this, they're feeling we're weak. We've been wandering in the forest, it's dark, it's the middle of the night, and we're just young girls. Now, I know this is not popular in 2021, but traditionally the women in the cold, the weaker sex, delicate. So there is a, a reality to that, that these 
you know, in this world, we're not actually women, we're actually men, we're just souls in these particular costumes this time around. But these are the real women, and they do have this kind of delicate nature to them. I mean, actually, of course, each of these gopis are powerful beyond measure. I mean, if a Brahma, who's uh, generally still a conditioned jiva, can create a whole universe, imagine what my pure devotee can do. So it's, they're not weak from our perspective. But this is their mood. Oh, we're just weak, delicate girls, and we're in distress that in our weakness we can't find Krishna. We can't offer him ourselves. And this is also some uh, distress that Krishna's with his body. He's with his wife. And therefore he's only able to enjoy with her and not with the rest of us. Uh, generally it says, like Krishna does, Kaviraj says, without many women there's no enjoyment of Rasa. That Krishna has so many, you know, unlimited gopis, each of whom have their own relationship with Krishna. And therefore, although Krishna also has relationships with each of these gopis individually, he likes to also enjoy with all of them together, like in the, that's what the Rasa dance is all about. And the Rasa dance is considered the pinnacle of understanding of the enjoyment of God and the pastimes of God. So our God brother, Garuda Prabhu, who used to live here, he said when he was getting his, his PhD in theology, that he was trying to decide what to do his dissertation on, the professor said to him, what is the highest expression of your theology? And he said, well, the Rasa dance. And they said, you should do your dissertation on that. Which kind of was a little taken aback by that, but that is, of course, exactly what he did. And the painting we normally have in the temple room by a little Krishna was on the cover of that, of that book that was the publishing of his dissertation. So this Rasila is the highest pinnacle of Krishna's enjoyment, and there Krishna's with all of the gopis. All the different groups, right? Rupa Goswami identifies that there's four different main groups. There's Radha's group, there's groups which are friendly to her, like Shamala, there's groups which are neutral, like Badra's group, and groups which are in opposition, like Chandravali's groups. But he says he, he identifies 350 types of gopis, and he says that actually there are some limited types. So the gopis are also in distress because they're thinking Krishna is not with all of us, he likes to be with all of us. Uh, yesterday we went to a house program at Sudevi's house, and there were how many how many preps were there at that at that program? So there was lasagna, there was samosas, there was chutney, there was a wet sachi, there was dry sachi, there was salad, sambar, coconut chutney, uh, ginger tea, and cake. Did I get everything? That's like ten preps. So the gopis are thinking like that. Krishna wants all ten preps. <laughs> he wants all, you know, ten million preps. I mean, it's very interesting. Uh, scientifically, we eat more when there's more variety of preps than if there's only one. Yeah. I'm sure you've all noticed that we can eat something and then when the dessert comes out, we have room for it even though we're full. So the, the scientists speculate that that's because biologically we're more likely to be healthy if we eat a variety of food. We're more likely to get enough micronutrition if we eat a variety of food. So when there's a lot of preps, we feel that we can eat more. I mean, they've done studies with this. You know, if there's just one thing 
you feel satiated sooner. So the gopis are thinking like that. Krishna only has one prayer. He's only got one gopi. How is he going to be happy? And so they're in distress like that. This is not... So in other words, both of these things, they're not personal. They're not, I am in distress, and I want Krishna to come and relieve my distress as my order supplier, but they're, I am in distress because Krishna's not happy. I'm not able to please Krishna. All of the times that the devotees are wanting Krishna to come back from Vrindavan, like a Kurukshetra or Dravatiyatra, where they're trying to pull Krishna back to Vrindavan, or where they're lamenting that Krishna's in Mathura, it's not a material thing where they're thinking, Krishna's not here to satisfy my senses and my order and give me the ecstasy that I want. They're not thinking like that. They're thinking, Krishna enjoys the most when he's in Vrindavan. And therefore, I want to bring him back to Vrindavan so I can offer my service that is very pleasing to him. If you can think of it, you know, like people go home this time of year, Thanksgiving and Christmas, they go home, and I'm sure a lot of adult children tell their mother, oh, mom, there's nothing like your cooking. And the mother may be lamenting, oh, my child's far away from home, they're having to eat at restaurants, or they're having to cook for themselves, and I can't cook their favorite dishes for them. You know, or if someone goes on a business trip and the spouse is thinking, oh, you know, I can't make home-cooked food for my spouse. They're having to eat things that are not nice. They're not able to sleep in their own bed. They're not able to get the facility that they want because they're away from home. So that's how these focus are thinking. Both in terms of, I'm weak, and I can't serve Krishna, and, oh, Krishna's just with this one gopi. Now, there are also, as we're going, I don't want to steal the thunder from the upcoming verses, but just to say very briefly that there are, as I mentioned, different main groups of gopis, although each gopi has an individual relationship. And so those gopis that are in Radha's group, although they're also in distress because Krishna is away from them, as they notice that the leader of their group is the one who is with Krishna, they're very happy for that. So they're thinking, we're not all with Krishna, but at least he's with the leader of our group. And in fact, sometimes in the leelas, when Krishna is with Radharani, your other friends will remove themselves. And they'll say, oh, we need to go pick some flowers over there so Krishna can be alone with our group leader. But the gopis in other groups are feeling distressed that, well, Krishna's just with Radha and he's not with our group leader and he's not with our group. And again, that comes not from a materialistic ego, but from the sense that Krishna is not tasting the particular kind of rasa that our group can offer, because it is a different taste. Right? We have this talk about these two big categories, left-wing gopis and right-wing gopis, and Krishna likes both tastes. So if Krishna is only with one group, the gopis from the other groups will say, oh, Krishna, he's not having a full menu. He's not enjoying everything. And of course... Uh, and this is, again, at a very high esoteric level. But every devotee is thinking that what I offer to Krishna, he likes the best. And there, no one's thinking, oh, Krishna likes better what someone else is offering, and my offering is inferior. None of them feel like that. And it's interesting, Sanatana Goswami, Tommy talks about this with the counterpoise, that 
Each cowherd boy feels I am Krishna's favorite. And they actually are. And the same thing among the cowherd boys or among the older uh, gopas and gopis or among the camels. Or there are different moods. Everyone knows if you've ever had an animal as a pet that some animals are very shy and some animals are very outgoing and social and some animals are very demanding. Yes? I, I remember uh, we used to sometimes say for our children when we were out shopping, we'd stop at pet shops when our children were very young. It's like a kind of mini zoo where they could be entertained for a few minutes on our shopping trip. And I remember one of these pet shops, there was a booklet about hermit crabs. And I was, I was reading this booklet and it was saying, hermit crabs each have their own personality that you will notice if you put an obstacle in the tank, some of them will simply stop and turn around the other way. Some of them will go over the obstacle, some of them will go around the obstacle. And they have consistent personalities. So this is true uh, ultimately as well. And in the spiritual realm, each devotee has their particular personality because it's the way that they want to express love for Krishna. In this world, I have a particular personality because of the different samskaras in previous lifetimes. That's why I have a particular body, that's why I have a particular personality. And it changes from lifetime to lifetime. I'm not going to exhibit exactly the same personality in each of my lifetimes. Just like I'm not going to sit at the same kind of gross body each of my lifetimes. But in our original spiritual form, that personality is not an exhibition of karma or some sparse impressions. It's an exhibition of how I want to love Krishna. How I want to express my love And naturally, I feel that how I want to express my love for Krishna is the best way to express love for Krishna. Does this make sense to everybody? I'm thinking, how would Krishna be the most pleased? Oh, he would be the most pleased in this way. Therefore, I want to please him in that way. And that desire to please Krishna in a certain way results in, it's it's manifested in a particular eternal spiritual form and mentality. So therefore, if I'm not with Krishna, I'm feeling he's not being served in the best possible way because the way I serve him is the best possible way. Now, Srila Prabhupada always uses the word false ego because there is a real ego. Uh, Krishna, we mentioned briefly yesterday, Mamata, Krishna is mine. You know, the, some of the devotees in Shantaras, they have no Mamata, not even Krishna is my Lord. Those in servitude, they, Krishna is my Lord, Krishna is my master, Krishna is my father. Those in friendship, Krishna is my friend. Those in parental, Krishna is my child or my student. And those in conjugal, Krishna is my husband, Krishna is my beloved. Krishna is mine. Krishna belongs to me. Prabhupada said we can only get rid of possessiveness when we feel I possess Krishna. And I belong to him. And I know how to serve him in the way he's most of Every devotee is And this is why separation is painful. So this is another reason the gopis are lamenting this and not to He says due to separation. That in separation, I, I can't please Krishna in the way that he's most pleased. Because nobody else can please him the way I can. And this is the original form of ego. 
know, at the same time, the devotee is feeling, I am not the least, I am not even the least. I am the most insignificant. I am just the servant of the servant of the servant of the servant of the servant. And putting these two things together is almost impossible for a materialistic mind. If I think, Krishna really likes my service the best, then I must be the best and the most important. But the devotees are all thinking, even Shumati Radharani is thinking, I am the least. These two things are in juxtaposition. Which again is inconceivable. Just like, again, we have Bhagavatamita, before Gopakumar can enter into Vrindavan, he has to have absolute humility. He's in the spiritual world, in Dvorka, but he can't enter Vrindavan until he has absolute humility. And interestingly enough, Narayana and Buddha were talking about this has to be coupled with distress, this spiritual distress. And I'm separate from Krishna. This, this greed, this loathing, I want to satisfy Krishna this way, but I can't. I can't because I'm too weak. I can't because I'm separated from him geographically. And I can't because he's with somebody else. So these are the three ways in which these gopis are feeling artana. I'm, I'm too weak. He's with somebody else. And I'm geographically separate. But I have to. I have to serve him with the way I can serve him because only that will make him happy. I need to do this. Again, a material example is if I feel I need to get this there on time. I take care of the Tulsi leaves and Mildreys for the deities. And I have some anxiety about this. Are we, do we have enough leaves for the day? When are we going to run out? At which point in the day are we going to run out? Are we going to have enough for the offering for the 4 o'clock offering? I need to get there. If I don't get there, it's not, nobody else is going to take care of it. I do it. You know, so there's this sort of anxiety. I have to be there for Krishna to offer my service. Now, what's ironic is that this very anxiety, this feeling of weakness, this feeling with thinking Krishna's just with this one girl being transcendental jealousy, even, or this sense of separation, is all Rupa Goswami explains the time of ecstasy. In fact, it's such a great ecstasy that Sanatana Goswami explains it dances on the heads of all other ecstasy. I mean, it's, it's a very strange thing, this spiritual life. Because in the material world, if I want to offer you service, I have to physically offer you service. I can't just think about giving you money, I have to actually give you money. I can't think about giving you, you know, an apple. I actually give you an apple. It's not worth anything otherwise. Years ago, two of my brothers were, were talking, and one of them said, you know, well, my heart's at the temple program. And the other one said, why don't you bring the rest of your body? You know, so it's like on the material platform, my father always used to say, the way to hell is paid with good intentions. You know, well, I, I want to chant my grounds. I want to follow the principles. I want to do some service. You know, okay, yes. Prabhupada says if you want to serve Krishna, in one sense, you're already liberated, even if you're not serving Krishna. There's this wonderful purport in Bhagavad Gita 331 that even if you're not up to the standard, if you work without resentment and without criticizing the principle, eventually you'll become perfect. But on the spiritual platform, meditating on service, in the mind, desiring to do service can be the same as actually doing service. 
We have this one Brahmacharya, what's his name? Nikula Brahmacharya? I think it was his name. Who mentally was making a path for the Lord. He was making a path for Lord Chaitanya out of jewels. What was his name? Do you remember? Oh, I just read about that the other day. Yeah, he was a cool And he got to Kanani Nathashala, and he couldn't make a path anymore. And he said to the devotees, Mahaprabhu is not going to go past Kanani Nathashala. Because he knew he couldn't make a path anymore. That Raman would offer everything to the Lord in his mind, and then Lord Ryan was laughing and brought him to Vaikuntha. And there's a very famous story from South India about someone who made a temple for Lord Shiva in his mind. So there really isn't a weakness. That doesn't actually exist. We cannot be too weak because even if we're in bed with a high fever and we can't get out of bed, mentally offering to Krishna Krishna also exists. That's not that we should be lazy and I have the capacity to do service and I just sit in bed and meditate. You know, I'm just going to sit and think about doing service. But if we're actually weak, it's also accepted. And there's no such thing as geographical separation. How can there be geographical separation from Krishna? Isn't that possible? I like the Krishnamar said, it's one of his favorite Bhagavad Gita verses, which I hope we get to put up on the property at 6.30. For those who see me everywhere and everything in me, I never lost to them more than I lost. So how can you be geographically separate from Krishna? He's everywhere. So what happens when the devotee feels as if they're geographically separated from Krishna, or they feel that they're too weak, or they feel Krishna's only with somebody else, that feeling intensifies, ironically, their sense of being with Krishna and offering their service. How interesting is that? The sense that I'm separated from Krishna and I can't offer my service because I'm weak or it's with someone else, that feeling is so overpowering that actually one feels more with Krishna than when one sees Krishna next to them. And one feels more of offering my service to Krishna than when one is literally offering one's service. So this distress of the gopis has to be understood in this uh, amazing transcendental way of joyfulness and not like a materially distressed person who's asking the Lord to satisfy their selfish desires. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Thank you. It's all the audience.